From the Heritage Foundation, this is Heritage Explains. On January 30th, 1972, a boy was born in Shreveport, Louisiana. His parents, Pat and Jean, were not married. They were only teenagers at the time. But that young man has gone on to have quite a notable career. He became a lawyer representing organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom, a professor at Liberty University, and eventually a congressman for the state of Louisiana. And on October 25th, he was elected Speaker of the House of Representatives. I think all the American people at one time had great pride in this institution. But right now, um, that's in jeopardy. And we have a challenge before us right now to rebuild and restore that trust. This is a, a beautiful country. It's the beauty of America that allows a, a firefighter's kid like me to come here and serve in this sacred chamber where great men and women have served before all of us and strive together to build and then preserve what Lincoln did refer to as the last best hope of man on earth. We stand at a very dangerous time. I'm stating the obvious. We all know that. The world is in turmoil. But a strong America is good for the entire world. Mike Johnson, a committed conservative, now holds the Speaker's gavel. But there is a lot of work to be done and a lot of legislation waiting to be passed. To give us some idea of what to expect, I sat down again with Richard Stern, director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget, here at the Heritage Foundation. Richard Stern, welcome back. Always a pleasure. So uh, it's been a busy couple of days. Uh, that's being generous. <laughs> yeah, how, 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 how are you feeling? Are you feel like you're drowning in all this? Like, how's it going for you? Well, sleep is always a premium. It's been even more so lately, right? But I'm excited, actually. So I, I had the honor of working for Mike Johnson for two years when he was chair of the Republican Study Committee. And it's nice to finally see a conservative actually be Speaker of the House. So I'm happy about that. That's sleep fantastic. De- sleep deprived or not. So can you tell us a little bit for people maybe who have just seen a bunch of this in the news? Can you give us the quick rundown on what's been happening. Who is Mike Johnson? What is his job now? And how did that happen? Absolutely. So I think what we've seen here over the last kind of three weeks, of course, is that conservatives in Congress were finally tired of having a leadership establishment that is embedded in many ways with the D.C. cartel that was stopping good conservative legislation from going through, that was bullying conservatives to not put their values forward, really to not represent any conservative visions in a full way. Mike Johnson has always been a conservative leader. And so I'm, for one, happy at the end of this whole process, we ended up with a real solid conservative coming out of the king of the hill being the Speaker of the House. So now a lot of people haven't heard of Mike Johnson. The Democrat media would tell you that he's a nobody, he's a backbencher. All of that's wrong, as you can imagine. He was the chairman of the Republican Study Committee. That is the largest caucus in the House of Representatives. It is well over three-quarters of Republicans elected in it. The RSC has the work of writing the summaries and all the bills. It has the work of writing legislation, of putting together platforms. When he was chairman, we put together something called the Conservative Playbook. Sounds like what it is. In fact, an enormous amount of the platform 
of what Republicans have pushed for since two Congresses ago came out of that book. It's stuff that's in the RC budget, stuff that Heritage, frankly, has championed in the past as well, and stuff that I brought from RC back over here to Heritage when I came over. And he's been a leader. He's been a leader for years. He's a real representation of, of the convictions and vision that make up the conservative movement. And so with him at the helm there, you're seeing a sea change for at least the first time in a generation that conservatives, actual conservatives with a real conservative vision steeped in the values of our founders are finally at the helm of the House. So that's a pretty exciting idea. Uh, but now we're starting to see some of the legislation come through that would hopefully back some of that up. So can you talk about the legislation that we've seen coming down the pike and what it's going to mean for conservatives? Absolutely. So there are 12 appropriations bills that we're supposed to do every year. These represent all of the discretionary federal spending that goes on. It's 12 bills that each have their own kind of niche issue areas that are covered in there. And there's a excellent episode of Heritage Explains out there where you can get the lowdown on what appropriations is and how these 12 bills are important and so on. But in any case, we have some of them now. Exactly. The goal is always pass all 12 of these bills, do it separately. That's never happened. The last year where we did the whole budget process properly, we had 12 separate bills, yada, yada. I think it was 1977, to be honest. But what's happened this year is leadership because conservatives forced them to started actually putting these bills together individually. Now, you might ask yourself, why does that matter? Here's why. If we don't do the bills individually, then what happens is there's one gigantic, several thousand page long bill that gets put together, gets shoved in front of Congress, and you've got, oh, that's right, 24 hours or less to read it and vote on it. And if you think that you can't read thousands of pages in 24 hours and vote on it, neither can the members, neither can the staffers. And so this was just a way for leadership to put all the pork they want in there, to put all their deals for their donors and favorites in there, and get its stuff through Congress. Doing each bill individually is the bulwark against that. That's the thing that allows it to be individually considered on each bill, to allow members of Congress to put their voice forward. It allows you, the American people, to really weigh in, to say, look, look at this kind of corrupt thing that's been put in this bill. We want that out of there. So Johnson is making good on that promise. Now, McCarthy kind of dragged his heels on it. We had a couple bills go through Congress incredibly late. And those are the bills that are kind of, to be honest, the easier ones to do. So things like defense, like veterans affairs, these are the bills that usually go through the least controversy. Mike Johnson put energy and water up. It's got the EPA in it. It's got Army Air Corps of Engineers projects. That's a bill that takes real work and negotiation to come together. He put it on the floor in a pass. Now, it passed by 11 votes, but he got it done. And so this week, again, we're seeing transportation and housing. We're seeing interior environment. So these are really reflective, right, of Johnson's push to get everyone in the room together, get everyone on the same page, figure out what can be agreed to, what can't be, where the deals are, what can be done, and make sure we get these bills done overall. Now, the other thing I should say about it is all of these bills represent actually, and this is again the work of conservatives all year, they represent real spending cuts. So these bills would actually not just grow the government, not just grow it slower, not even flat funding. These would cut $70 billion a year off of government spending. Now, it's not a lot, but it's a down payment. And it will be the first time in well over a decade that we've actually cut government spending. So for people like me, this is you know July 4th all over again, right? And so I think that's the other thing to keep in mind here is that these bills would actually cut spending. They represent more of the conservative vision. And Mike Johnson's doing what he can to get these done, get these across the finish line before the Senate, frankly, hands us bills that would increase spending, which is what the Democrats have been trying to do to us. Excellent. So there have been a few 
kind of sticking points or things that we know as an institution we're looking for that are coming down the pike in terms of spending and in terms of the bills being passed. And one of them uh, is an attempt to tie together funding for Israel with funding for Ukraine. But we at Heritage have decided that we're not for that move. Why not? No. So here's the fundamental thing about this, right? Every dollar spent by the government is really a dollar that comes out of the paychecks of hardworking American families. And so tragically, despite the nobility of the cause, whenever you spend a dollar from the government, it comes at the expense of a hardworking American family. So for us, these are two fundamentally different conflicts. They're incredibly different conflicts. Ukraine is fighting in some ways a regional proxy war of Russia, though that certainly has implications for the rest of Europe and for NATO. Israel, on the other hand, though, is a very close ally of the U.S., where Ukraine is not, frankly, a, a rights-respecting democracy, where they have laws on the books that are discriminatory to ethnic minorities, where Ukraine's government is rife with corruption, where they're a new democracy. Israel is a very long-standing democracy that has robust human rights protections, robust defense of God's given natural rights in very much the style of America, of, of our closest allies. Israel is fighting fundamentally terrorist organizations that reflect the Iranian regime, entities that are right to right now, as we're talking, attacking U.S. military bases that have attacked Americans. There are Americans being held hostage in Gaza. So, you know, fundamentally, we're talking about two very different conflicts. And so we believe in the Heritage Foundation it would be an absolute injustice to say to Congress, hey, you have to now forcefully take perhaps $106 billion, that's what the request is at the moment, from American households. That is, by the way, 800 or so dollars per household in this country. That is a lot of money. And so forcing Congress to, to vote on this as one giant bill is to play casual, loose and, loose and fast with what we're stealing from Americans by pretending as if these are all the same conflict and they don't have individual things that are worthy of considering. So for us, it's an absolute must that if you're going to take that much money from American households, you got to do it by the book. You got to have separate conversations on separate conflicts and have each of these conversations get their due and be a real faithful conversation in front of the American public. Another issue that comes up here is um, discussions about border funding. And the Biden administration has introduced um, kind of border funding components to some of these bills um, to kind of grease the skids on legislation. We have thoughts on that, too. Absolutely. The first thing I would say about this is the money the administration's put up in theory for the border, a lot less of it is for the border and a lot more of it is for left-wing, oh, that's right, third-party organizations to ship migrants deeper into the United States. This is what they consider border security. But are we surprised by that, right? Here's you know what's going on in the, in the bills that they've been talking about. They've been talking about, I think, close to but less than what they're talking about for Israeli aid for the border. And then they're talking about two and a half or so times as much money for Ukraine as combined for the border and for Israel. So, you know, what we're looking from the administration is an absolute crisis of the border. We have drugs coming in. We have illicit arms coming in. We have terrorists coming in, right? We went from essentially no terror watch list people coming under Trump to hundreds, right, in the time that Biden has been president. And so this is a real threat for everyone in the United States. And whether that threat is from fentanyl, from other drugs, from illicit arms, from terrorists coming in, let alone all the other myriad things that are going on, on the border, the administration, only because they're being forced by the crisis, by conservatives, are offering a pittance for border security. And again, more than half of that money they're offering is not for border security. It's for border insecurity. It's to help the left-wing organizations to do what they're doing anyway. It's a slap in the face, honestly. But you're right. 
They're using it as this carrot that they're trying to hold out to try to convince people to come over, but don't fall victim to their propaganda and the way they're doing it. And again, the overwhelming majority of this bill is Ukraine money. And again, if you burrow into it, only a portion of that is even military assistance to Ukraine. An awful lot of it is what is called economic assistance. Now, in the past, a lot of that has ended up in the pocketbooks of individual Ukrainian politicians. A lot of it ended up in the pension fund for civil servants working for the Ukrainian government. So, you know, that's what we're talking about about this bill. But you're right. They're trying to maneuver the chess pieces around and trying to get people comfortable with the idea of taking all of this money just to funnel it down these rabbit holes we've sent money down before. Yes. So one of the unique things about these appropriations bills is the way that they approach government regulators. What is that? Well, so if you think of it this way, the way the founders talked about the power of the purse is that you can't regulate unless you've got money to pay for it. So all of those staff salaries for regulators, everything from the staplers they use, the computers to their salaries comes out of these discretionary appropriations bills we're talking about. And you're talking about bureaucrats like in the FDA and in the EPA and yeah, all of those things. So whenever you look at something and you say, why can't I get good water pressure out of my faucets? You can thank the EPA. When you look at the, you know, how expensive gas cars are now, you can thank the EPA. There's actually a lot of things you can thank the EPA for and increasingly a lot of other federal agencies. But I digress about how much I hate regulations. We could do that for hours and hours here. But that's exactly right. All of those different regulatory bodies that impose little costs here and here, you know, that, that make it so you literally can't get this product or you have to buy that product – those regulators are funded by these discretionary appropriations bills. So one of the tried and true things in these bills is something called the limitation provisions. And these are what they sound like. They're provisions of law that say, hey, Department of Labor, here's billions of dollars, but you can't use this for that. You can't use any of this money to regulate this. You can only use this much to regulate that. So there are things that tie the hands of bureaucrats. So if you remember the the gun walking exercise that the FBI did, right, where they took illegal guns and they sold it to drug cartels just so they could trace the serial numbers on the guns. There is a limitation provision in the appropriate bills that prevents that kind of activity precisely because that was a classic case of the executive branch abusing its power, abusing taxpayer dollars. Now, part of why I'm bringing all this up is one of the things that Johnson's given us and Franklin McCarthy had helped with and conservatives this year in Congress have pushed for is these appropriations bills that the House are passing have a bunch of new limitation provisions. There are things that defend our values, that fight against the anti-life assault and agenda from the Biden administration, that tie the hands of regulators. And so one of the things we're seeing in the appropriations bills this year in the House is a renewed effort for Congress to reassert its authority over regulations, to reassert what a good vision is of regulatory policy, and putting it back in the hands of limited government conservatives. So again, another thing to be excited about this year. Thank you to Richard Stern for his contributions to this episode. You can find more of his work at heritage.org, and you can follow him on X at Rich A. Stern. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, send them our way at heritageexplains at heritage.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It's written and produced by Mark Guiney, Lauren Evans, and John Pop.